My guest today is award-winning and internationally best-selling author Lauren Bukas, who most of us would know for her novels, Moxieland, Zoo City, The Shining Girls, Broken Monsters, and most recently, Afterland. All this in addition to her work as a comics writer, a screenwriter, a journalist, and a documentary filmmaker. But The Shining Girls is the reason she joins me on the pod today, as it's been adapted for television by none other than Apple TV+, Plus, starring none other than The Handmaid's Tale's Elizabeth Moss. And so it is with the utmost pride and privilege that I'm able to pick Lauren's fantastic brains today. Lauren Birkus, welcome to TGE's Current Reads. Thank you so much, Samantha. That was a hell of an introduction. <laughs> you know, you are most deserving of it. You are so prolific, and I think it gives so much hope to South African writers especially, you know, you've, you've done so much in the arts and for the arts. So I'm really uh, looking forward to getting to sinking my teeth into, into this. I mean, okay, let's, I want to, I want to hear how you feeling because it was, it was not long ago, less than a week, in fact, that one of your brainchilds premiered on a major television uh, streaming channel featuring a major actress. I mean, is, is that the most surreal thing to have ever happened to you? It is completely. It's been very hard to compute because it just feels so unreal. You know, even seeing my name in the credits, you know, based on the book by Lauren Bukas, I'm just like, what is happening? I don't really understand. And then Elizabeth Moss is on Jimmy Fallon talking about it. And I'm like, this is so strange. But it's incredibly exciting. It's so wonderful. Uh, there's an all-star cast. It's, you know, it's also Jamie Bell, who we last saw in Billy Elliot. I mean, he's been mm. some other things in between. Wagner Morrow from, from Narcos. Philippa Sue from Hamilton. Just this incredible lineup who are bringing their all, making it their own. And the adaptation is, it is different. And that's fine because it's really smart and it's really dark and interesting in its own ways. So we're going to get stuck into that that difference in the adaptation. So for our listeners' sake, there will be some spoilers, I suppose, If you, uh, but not too many, not too many. I, I, but I do want to get stuck into those differences. For anybody living under a rock, though, elevator pitch it to me. What is the basic premise of The Shining Girls, be it your original 2013 novel or the TV adaptation? I think I'm more qualified to talk about the novel. The book is about a time-traveling serial killer and the survivor who turns the hunt around. Yeah, and, and it kind of follows multiple women through history. And it's also about how we talk about violence against women. It's about the effects of trauma. It's how things have changed over the course of the 20th century for women. And sometimes not. You know, there's one character in the book who is an abortionist in the 70s where it's completely illegal and she's helping women to get humane abortions. And, and now it's How bizarre, no, right? You know, the thing is, those are, those are things I wanted to pick up on. The fact that we, we think these struggles are won, but they're actually not. And, you know, we constantly have to fight for our rights, especially as women. We're going to get stuck into femicide and um, gender-based violence. But first, logistically, there's three episodes out. Possibly by the time this airs, the fourth episode will be out on Friday. Logistically, most film and TV adaptations will differ from the book. You often hear, oh, I love the book so much more than the, than the show. And you get diehard fans, you know, really getting stuck into and angry about what changed or vice versa, you know. But Silka Louisa, I, I think, did a great job. What, were you precious about how she changed your source material? Sorry, Silka Louisa being the, the writer for the, 
the show, the TV adaptation. It was so great chatting to Silke Louisa, the showrunner, right in the beginning. And I shared a lot of my research with her. We talked about character motivations and kind of what I was trying to do with the book. I think an adaptation necessarily has to be a different animal. And it was, of course, it's scary, like letting your, your work go out into the world. But I think if someone's doing something more interesting and in some ways better with it, you know, especially for the medium, it's amazing to have someone else take your work and play with it and pull on the threads and stay true to the bloody heart, but do some really interesting things. Rachel Kirby's mom like shows up a lot more in the series. I love what Silk has done with the character of Wagner Morrow. Well, Wagner Morrow's character, Dan Velasquez. And apparently Wagner also like came to the table there. He was like, no, he wants the character to be Brazilian because he's Brazilian. He really wants to kind of bring out some of that essential national, you know, essence of himself and really play with the character. And I kind of like the Dan in the TV series more than I like him in the book. So that's been really interesting to see. There's obviously some things I think were better in the book, but I think it's also, it's a different thing. And I'm so proud of the way it's turned out. I mean, it's it's also the the dark sort of macabre, uh, you know, translation of it is fantastic. I've really thoroughly been in, enjoying the the series. You are kind of also more lost in the series than you are in in the book at first because the novel senses around Harper a lot more. So he's the a villain protagonist, is, is what I like to call him. He's not an anti-hero. He's the, yeah. he's the killer. We know he's the killer. We can do, deduce as much from very early on. But we travel with him in addition to the time traveling. We travel with him, so to say, as he himself unravels the mystery of how he came to be the killer, right? So all this confusion is brought forth by that time traveling element. But... Then the series senses largely on Kirby. Did, in, as per the visual medium, did you find this to be more effective, a different take, a different emphasis on sort of the femicide, you know, gender-based violence part of it? What was your take on just sort of that extreme shift in narrative? Well, I do want to say that Harper turns up a lot more as you get later into the series. Okay. And, and we do spend some time with him. We do see how he became this kind of person. And it's really chilling and I love that Jamie Bell is kind of this small everyman kind of serial killer which most serial killers are they're not fascinating Hannibal Lecter's uh, they're small and contemptible and vicious I, I think what's really different between the book and the series is that we don't focus so much on the other woman so you know I, I picked a woman from history who are kind of exceptional in their times not that they were going to grow up to be the next president of the USA but you know people who were Bucking Convention, you know, it's a lesbian uh, communist architect in the 1950s. It's a black woman in the 1940s who's working in the shipping yards during World War II, and she's segregated from other people, even though her husband died at war. But of course, he doesn't get a medal because he's black. So I want to kind of have these, you know, ordinary but extraordinary stories, which I think so many stories are. You know, everyone has extraordinary moments in their life. And that doesn't come through so much in the show because Silke Louisa decided that she wanted to, you know, the most narrative punch and the push through would be to focus on Kirby in particular and like one person's story. And I think for the medium, that makes a lot of sense. There is a line in which I'm not sure is in, 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 in the book, in the first episode where they're in the planetarium and they're talking about stars mm. where the two characters, Harper and his victim, differ in opinion about what's shining. And I think there she brought, I was like, okay, there's 
Louise's take, Silke Louise's take on the shining girl element. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a beautiful scene in it, and it's not in the book. I mean, there is, Mr. Harper does talk about the stars in the book, but it was kind of, you know, about talking about glittering trajectories and, and you know, whether the stars determine our fate or whether they're just kind of cold and dead in the sky. But yeah, no, I, I think she's added. So, you know, with with Philippa Sue's character, Jen Sook in the mm-hmm. planetarium, you know, working as, uh, you know, I think it's an astrophysicist. That's different to the book. The book, she's a, a chemist working on resurrection plants yeah. um, and studying that. But I think it's really interesting. And I think it allows Silk Louisa to like play out some of those kind of metaphysical concepts and talk about time and talk about space and kind of how things interrelate. And thematically that makes a lot of sense as well. Mm. So I think again, like really interesting, smart narrative choices. I do have to say there's some lines of dialogue in the show that I wish I'd written. I was just like, oh my God, this is incredible. Really? And it's, yeah, no. I mean, it also speaks a lot to you, to your character as a writer and a creative that you're like, oh, good on you for taking that and, and making it your own and that you're not too precious about it. Look, it would have been very different if it was garbage. Yeah. yeah. Then I, I think, you know, I love I love collaboration. I love seeing what other minds do. And I think to have made such a strong, interesting show, you know, from the DNA of my book with, with the same bloody heart is like and the same characters is so exciting. So I want to talk a little bit about Kirby, you know, as a narrator in the book, but also in the film adaptation, in, uh, in the TV adaptation, excuse me. So she comes across as more mentally ill for me in the first few episodes. Nothing makes sense. Everything keeps uh, changing for her. And I was trying to think, okay, application here. There's a lot of recognizable victim blaming in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know what your take on that is. I think it gives force and impetus to that, again, the gender-based violence part of it all, how a victim of that kind of trauma would feel and would experience that. Yeah, I think Silk Louisa went for a much more kind of a a meditation on trauma and what it does to you. And I think the fact that reality is constantly shifting, which is a different thing to the book. In the book, the time travel is a closed loop. And here it's more you know, multiverse spinoffs every time mm. something changes. You know, I, so I think what Silk Louise was trying to do was really kind of explore what trauma does to you and the fact that, and kind of use that, what Kirby's going through as a metaphor. So things are constantly changing for Kirby. Her cat is suddenly a dog. Her desk moves across the room. She's married. She's not married. Her hair keeps changing. And, and I think that is a great metaphor for what a lot of trauma victims go through, where you can't trust anything and the ground is constantly shifting under you. You don't know how to react. You don't know what to anticipate. And you're always kind of, you know, and I think South Africans, we relate a lot to this. You're, you're constantly on high alert and you just have this fight or flight response constantly activated. Mm, There's this PTSD going on. Completely. Under the surface all the time. Yeah. In the book, I think Kirby deals a lot with it, a lot more with humor so she's constantly wisecracking and she's deflecting. She's trying to get away from that. But she's also a much younger person in the book. In the book, she's yes. 24. And I think having, you know, Elizabeth Moss came on board because she loved the book and she championed this project. And that's why it happened, because she took it to Apple and said, I want to do this. And Apple were like, oh, my God, Elizabeth Moss. Yes, of course, whatever you want. <laughs> I think it was slightly more complicated than that. But, you know, and and I love that she's made the character older. And I think that's a different kind of story. And it's really interesting. And to have one of the greatest actors of our generation, like, kind of bring herself to that role is incredible. She's a lot darker in the series and I think the weight and the gravitas of yeah. a, that comes with age is then brought forward to that is, is 
essentially what you what I'm I'm repeating what you're saying. But yeah, I yeah. I found a photo of you in prepping for this interview. I came across this photo of you with a piece of a string, like a mm-hmm. yarn like, that a cat would play a with. Mur- you're, a murder board. Yes, you're looking somewhat maniacal, and I love it. <laughs> is this so your murder board? What is your murder board? What was your murder board? So it was when I was trying to plot out the book and it was very important to me that there weren't any plot holes and that the time travel worked. And one of the ways I dealt with Harper as a character was just because I hated being in his head. I hated writing from his perspective. And the way I dealt with it was I just tried to hurt him at every single opportunity. So, you know, I got him stung by a bee and I got him bitten by a dog and I got his jaw broken and, you know, got beaten up in like the alley. But then I also had to keep track of his injuries you know, because if he's jumping from 1931 to 1984, has his jaw had time to heal because he's only been at home for like three days? No, it hasn't. So it's still wired up. And then I also, you know, whenever he kills someone, he takes an object from the woman and he leaves another object behind. So I also had to track the movement of the objects. And I just I just needed to have this visual, you know, way to be able for me to be able to track it. And it does look like it, like, you know, a very wild depiction with all these kind of red threads everywhere and I had printouts of like photographs that I'd taken or and then also like kind of character inspiration images that I'd found online you know it was kind of the feel of a character it's not casting I'm not like oh okay cool Elizabeth Moss it's more going through old historic photos and finding something being like oh yes that looks beautiful that's the kind of evocation I want in my character which but there is a very funny story about that picture which is that Chris Stein who is the guitarist from the band Blondie um, two years ago, posted a picture of that that image, which he'd found online, and had a caption on Twitter about QAnon trying to like figure out this latest thing. And I, I had to <laughs> I had to message him, and I have some friends who are friends with him, and I had to ask them to like reach out to him and be like, dude, please do not associate. I'm a real person. This is my photo. Mm. Please do not associate me with QAnon. I just you know, and that conspiracy theory craziness. Yeah. That's crazy. I know. <laughs> I like, I did not expect that to be on my, you know, 21st century bingo card, like guitarist <laughs> from Blondie posting a picture of you linking you to QAnon. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> Definitely not a member of QAnon, just so everyone knows. So, Lauren, I, you, you'd be talking about Harper, how you tried to hurt him at every opportunity. But I, I really wanted to pick your brain on how you managed to write this villain protagonist who's not an anti-hero because a lot of the time when there is a protagonist, even if they are they are severely flawed, you kind of find the humanism and the humanity in them and you empathize with them to, to a small degree, but not with Harper. He's such a unique character in that sense and somehow through him as well, you honor the victims um, through his ca- char- character development and through the plot points around the villain. I mean... I don't know how you did this, through raw talent or or was something more intentional? I think it was mainly through anger. I think, you know, traditionally in a lot of crime fiction, I think it is definitely changing now. But the TV show Hannibal is a prime example where Hannibal is, you know, this, this cannibal serial killer, but he's so smart and, you know, diabolical and, and charming and interesting. And he's outwitting the detective while serving them up some liver and he staged this beautiful kind of sculpture of a young woman's naked body impaled upon the antlers and the dawn sun, like touching her naked skin. And I'm like, this is 
like let's not elevate serial killers because most serial killers are not diabolical and fascinating. They are small, pathetic men. And the most interesting thing about them is the violence that they do, which comes from this place of just contempt and brokenness. And I wanted to make Harper small and mean and, and diminished. And that's why he hates the woman so much, which I think speaks to normal misogyny, you know, as a metaphor for, you know, this isn't, the reality is that most of us are not going to be killed by a serial killer. That what happens in the real world is most women are killed by the people who are supposed to love them, by the men who are supposed to love them. But it's the same instinct that's coming from Harper. It's a small, mean brokenness where they feel that women threaten them and they feel that women kind of take away their own shine. And Harper is kind of embodying the spirit of that level of misogyny. Sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Chicago is what I wanted to talk about next. Makes for a really interesting setting. You spent a, not a year there, I don't think, but you spent a year no, I researching. Lived there for a year. You did. I lived there for a year and In- then I went back on research trips. Okay. So you had some kind of backing, foregrounding for the novel, but then you went back to do some additional research. For me, for South African viewers and readers, it helps with the suspension of disbelief that makes the story enjoyable, in my opinion. Would you agree on that sense in terms of South African uh, readers and, and viewers? And have you caught any heat that it wasn't set in South Africa? Yeah, of course, you know, and and some people have, you know, said that I've sold out because I set my books in America now. But when I came, you know, the, the idea came up first, which was a time-traveling serial killer. And I knew that I didn't want to do Bill and Ted's excellent, you know, killing spree <laughs> through time from Cro-Magnon to the year 3000. I knew I wanted to focus on the 20th century and look at how history has shaped us. And I think as a South African, I was coming with that sensibility of understanding how fresh the wounds of history are and how that still continues to impact us. But as soon as I knew that, that I wanted to write about the 20th century, setting it in South Africa would have meant making an apartheid story. Mm. And and it would have had to then become an alternate history because it shouldn't have then been about like a man killing woman through, you know, time in South Africa. It should then be about how do we go back in time and like, you know, kill for Wurtz or like up end apartheid earlier, uh, you know, save Chris Hani. I think there would have been, it would have been a very different texture. And I think the biggest social issue of apartheid and the struggle would have had to overshadow everything else. So I'd lived in Chicago and that, that made a lot of sense to me. And so that, and Chicago feels a lot like South Africa and it feels a lot like Johannesburg where I grew up. When I went to visit the one week, one week when I on a research trip, my friends were saying, oh yeah, you know, there were 40 shootings this weekend. In so Chicago? Like, Chicago. I was like, sorry, what? Grief, yeah. I know. And, and there's a lot of, there's a history of corruption. There is a history of like segregation uh, with kind of black lining and red lining. And the apartheid government in the 1950s went to Chicago to learn how to do segregation better. And the way you do that is you drive a highway straight through the slums or the townships. And so the people can't organize, so they can't get together and kind of rise up. And it just felt so real and credible. Chicago is also really interesting for other reasons. The film industry actually started there. And then Charlie Chaplin was like, no, I wanted to be in Hollywood. And also like the first nuclear fission was done there. So there's some really interesting 20th century mm. historical texture and details. But it also felt like a way of writing about Johannesburg again for me. And it was also fascinating interviewing, a, you know, uh, a cop that I found and he worked in Niles, which is just outside of Chicago. It's kind of an outlying area of the greater Chicago land area. 
And he was telling me this crazy story about this one investigation where a woman, this is graphic, I'm sorry, a woman had been strangled to death with her necklace. And then she was lying in the morgue and the detectives came to pick up the murder weapon, which was the necklace, and take it into, you know, bag it for evidence. And it had been stolen by the mortuary workers. And I was like, well, this sounds like a South African story. <laughs> yeah. It just sounds like, you know, um, something I recognize and, and the fact that people are desperate and or, or dodgy and yeah. Well, now I've learned a lot more than I, <laughs> than I even bargained for, if, if I can believe it. Lauren, you made me think of something just coming from a writer's perspective. Do you think the narrative of apartheid is, for severe lack of a better word, on, in the moment here, do you think the narrative of apartheid is somewhat of a burden for South African writers, black and white, from all colours and creeds, if we are writing from the perspective of a South African? I think it's, you know, if you're writing a historical novel, absolutely. You know, then it's going to be a dominant thing. I think we are, I, look, I think apartheid shadows everything that we do as South Africans. I think, you know, we look at the, we're the most unequal country in the world. Gini coefficient is the highest in the world. And that is not because, you know, of corruption in our current government. I mean, that's partly the reason, but it's because of the legacy of apartheid. And it's, that history doesn't magically get better overnight. If you look at America, you know, they, they got rid of slavery 400 years ago. And they still have like all these incredible inequalities and like racial tensions and, you know, and, and cops killing black people and things don't magically get better. So of course that's part of our DNA and our history and who we are. And it's also something I carry with me in my work. You know, I'm very aware of social injustice. I'm very aware of kind of homophobia and transphobia and racism and, you know, misogyny. And that is something I write into. And I'm, Throughout all my work, I'm haunted, you know, I'm very interested in psychogeographies, how places are haunted by what's been done there, and how we are all haunted by what's been done to us, all the things that we've done. And how do you get through that? How do you move on with things while still acknowledging and respecting what has come before? It's definitely a responsibility, an added responsibility, I think, that uh, South African creatives do need to navigate. But I have to say that there are so many books which, you know, you know, it's not some, I don't think it's this terrible anchor that has to kind of drag behind you. I, you know, I think there's so many fascinating books kind of about the, the, the presence and, you know, wild works of the imagination. I'm thinking of Gloria and Lovo and I'm thinking about um, Alison McKay, who's got this great new book out. Mia Adun is this incredible colored writer from Cape Town who's written the most wild, like quintessentially Cape Flats fantasy novel called Mermaid Fillet and about criminals you know, who are trading instead of Perlamon, they're trading in mermaid steak. And it's just so clever and it's so amazing. And the writing and the language is diabolical and, and just wonderful. So I think there are so many incredible writers that we have right now and that people need to acknowledge our own talent more. Mm. And, you know, and to pick up on what you were saying in the beginning, yeah, I've been prolific, but also I haven't had to have a day job since 2011 when I got the Shiny Girls book deal. Because, you know, suddenly I won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2011 and I had this idea for a book about a time-traveling serial killer and I managed to find a really good agent after trying with three other agents before. And it was just kind of this lightning strike in the moment where I got this huge book deal. I was able to, like, pay for my writing. I had a very supportive partner, my ex-husband, and I was able to do all those things. And, and also in South Africa, I had childcare, you know, and yeah. I don't know if I'd be here. You know, I have, I have British writer friends who did not have childcare and their writing career basically stopped when they became mothers. 
So I think there are a lot of factors here, but I don't think it's, I don't think South African writers are not succeeding for lack of trying. I think I had an incredible opportunity. I lucked into this big payout and that enabled me to kind of go forward. And yes, of course there's talent and, you know, all the rest of it as well, but, but yeah. That's a great point to be making, especially ahead of the French Literary Festival that's coming up, Kingsmead Book Fair after two years, I think. Uh, so there's a call here, if I'm hearing you correctly, for support of South African writers, which is well-deserved, in fact, Absolutely. because the writers that you've mentioned, Alison McKay and um, Mia Dern, you, 100%, you're on the money with, with them. But but I do want to say like don't support them because they're South African writers like don't it's not don't come from this point of condescension of like oh you know which I'm not saying that you're saying but a lot of people are like I think the problem is the, with the word support you know you support your friends because you want to support them but actually you should go read these books because they're phenomenal and we have absolutely phenomenal talent and I think I think those book fairs are exactly the kind of place to be able to go and explore and hear writers talk and and kind of flip through and pick up on stuff and it, they're incredibly exciting places to be. It's a great call to action. I should leave it at that, but <laughs> I want to get back to femicide, genderless yeah. violence, which are issues central to the Shining Girls. These are not new issues, but you wrote the book in 2013 before Me Too really. Yeah, it was well, published. It was published. So you wrote it. I yeah. mean. From 2011 to 2012, yeah. Yes. Before the Me Too movement, before 2020, Uyaneni, you know, the, the sad focus on it here in South Africa. And there's, so there's renewed focus on the issue in our country and a call to action by the powers that be and South African citizens. Do you think fiction writing works as well as journalism, uh, which also stands to reason, to shine a spotlight on these issues? I think there are different things. I think fiction and some deeper narrative journalism, you know, where you get those kind of 5,000 word deep dive vanity fair pieces, for example, which of course our South African media landscape doesn't allow for, which is incredibly frustrating because I think, you know, a lot of my characters are journalists because I believe journalism, it's my own background, but I also believe journalism is our way of engaging and understanding the world as long as you're not making up stories about 10 babies. I think fiction does a different thing. I think fiction allows you to engage much more empathetically um, and it allows you to get outside yourself. And I think, and I think the reason, you know, there's been this kind of huge true crime resurgence and a lot of people interested in like kind of serial killer stories is because it's a fantasy. It's different to reality because if you're a woman in South Africa or a queer person in South Africa, the threat is real. And the threat is real from people who love you or from like just walking down the street. So I think our everyday reality in South Africa is just harrowing every single day. And you don't want to read about that. You know, I love horror. I don't want to watch home invasion stories because that's too close. It can be monsters and serial killers are a kind of monster. It's a kind of fairy tale that we can engage with that doesn't feel so close to home, that doesn't feel so kind of terrifying and right on top of you. You know, if, if I think you'd written about a serial killing home invader, there would be a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people would have engaged on the same level or, you know, a, a time-traveling domestic violence abuser. And it, it is the metaphors. It's, it's the, it allows us to engage with ideas in a way that is not so raw, that allows us to kind of explore those things and kind of carry through big ideas. And I think what's amazing about books is that you bring all of who you are to reading the book. And I sometimes get people who meet me and they think they're my best friend because they love my book so much and therefore we must connect. And I was like, cool, like you seem really lovely. But you misunderstand the relationship you have is with the book. Mm. And, and, and it is your personal, very intimate relationship with the book, which actually has nothing to do with me. 
because you've brought your life experience to that and your understanding, the way that you picture the characters is all you. And I think that's where books are amazing is that we take these stories into ourselves and we carry them with us. It makes me think of, and I don't want to harp on it, it makes me think of a tweet I think you put out last year that um, someone had walked into your home and was so pleased to have met you (laughs) and was such a huge fan of your books. And I know people think, like, I had somebody call me out and say, like, I was bragging and being arrogant. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you. This thing literally happened to me. I was home in the middle of the pandemic. And this very, very drunk woman who was hanging out with my neighbor suddenly walked into my apartment. And I was like, oh, my God, I love your work so much. And I was like, what is happening? At all. I don't know you. Like, that's great. <laughs> but, like, don't come into the house uninvited. What the heck? Yeah. yeah, and it's not like I'm recognized in the street or whatever. It was just this really weird kind of random thing super good point though that people are interacting with the work and not with with the author mm. which isn't which is not to say that I, I i love it when people come and talk to me like it's cool unless they're drunk and kind of invading <laughs> my house <laughs> uh uninvited mm. but you know I, I love talking to people at festivals and i've had i've had very occasional run-ins with someone in the street which has been really rad i think the i think the blue help hair helps make me identifiable yeah but it's always it's always really charming and lovely like it's nice to talk to readers it's nice to know that your work has kind of had an impact in the world it's it's very cool well it certainly has made a huge impact your whole body of work on the on the world and i believe that uh, broken monsters is also in the works it's in development yeah so but let's let's be realistic you know the shiny girls was optioned in 2013 and it's now 2022 that's how long it takes yeah we'll wait patiently Oh, yes, exactly. If we can. I've got some other TV shows that I'm developing, um, which are kind of original concepts. So we'll see what happens. Amazing. So, okay, on that note, I don't know if it's ever okay to ask a writer this, but (laughs) what is next for Lauren Bukas? I've got a new book coming out next year. We haven't decided on the exact dates. I'm still doing the edits. So it's called Bridge. And it's about a young woman whose mother has died. And she's kind of dealing with that and going through all her possessions. But maybe she hasn't died. Maybe she's only died in this reality. Wow. Love it. Love <laughs> you, Lauren Bukas. Congratulations on this achievement, this goal, representing uh, South Africa and South African creatives in such an amazing way. And I mean, just standing, besides uh, your ties to the country, as a woman writer in the world, I, I, I must applaud you. I, I hope I'm going to hit the right button here. Hang on. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me on TGE's Current Read.